Hello again. Welcome to this week's episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind. I'm Pastor Dan, and it is my pleasure and privilege once again to serve you in our virtual church classroom where we study the doctrines of the church, the Bible, and various other things that are all intended to help us know God more completely with our heart and our mind. And we also pray sincerely that we might come to know the heart and mind of God better in this process. It is the last week in August, first week in September. It splits right down the middle this week, and we are in Lesson 8 of our Christian Believer Study that we're working on together. It is uh, this week's lesson, I think, is going to be very interesting for us as we consider the nature of humanity and uh, I think you're going to have a good time with that. But before we begin, let's just check in on a couple of things. As I make this recording, one of the things that is may uh, be heavily on your mind, is certainly on my mind, are the ravages of Hurricane Harvey now attacking uh, the Louisiana coast more completely than it was a few days ago. Most of you know, as uh, I do, that this uh, this last week in August, first week in September of 2017, will be remembered as the time when unprecedented amounts of rain fell upon Houston, Texas, and the South Texas coast. And uh, they're dealing with something so big that they don't have anything to compare it to. And uh, many of us here in the Midwest are bracing for some of the leftover rain as it comes this way. But uh, the truth is, is we're much more concerned with how we can help our countrymen and neighbors down there in Texas and Louisiana. And much is being done right now to raise resources and send help. And this is a good thing that uh, I think fits the theme of this broadcast today as we talk about the divine nature of the human being. Uh, I think we find that uh, uh, there is a hint of God in us when we feel this great compassion for our fellow human, human beings when they're suffering. And so it's exciting to know that we're going to do something to help these people. And yet we grieve together with them in their loss. Now here in southwest Indiana, we find ourselves, as I said, bracing for some of that rain. And the truth is, we could really use some rain, and obviously they could use a lot less rain. So I'd be a little disappointed if some of that rain doesn't make its way here as our yards are drying out and our fields are starting to show signs of, uh, of drying out and the dust is becoming more common. There's been a lot of rain traveling in and around this area, but right here in Jasper, Indiana, it just hasn't rained very much lately, and uh, that's okay if you remember the heavy rains that caused uh, flooding and so forth back in the spring, but now we could use it. So uh, I guess what we can hope and pray for for everyone is balance, but sometimes creation gets a little bit out of control. I do hope that uh, you will uh, continue to pray for all of those with me, and I hope that you will look for a way to help. I would like to tell you that as a United Methodist Church, we're eager and, and uh, pleased to support uh, UMCOR, the United Methodist Committee on Relief, in uh, the way that we reach out to those people who are suffering. UMCOR is uh, the relief agency of the United Methodist Church, of which we are a part 
at Shiloh in Jasper, and uh, UMCOR is an agency that has an excellent record for helping people in these difficult times. They will arrange for volunteer workers. They will arrange for resources. And if we send money to them, 100% of the money we send to UMCOR goes to the person in need since the local United Methodist Churches are supporting the church with uh, the greater church with tithes and offerings that uh, provide for the administrative costs of UMCOR. So unlike some of the other relief agencies, UMCOR is supported from other sources for its administrative purposes, and it is entirely using the gifts that you give for relief of hurricane-related problems, for example, to help those people. So anyway... Uh, got a little distracted there. Something upstairs went thump. <laughs> anyway, I want to uh, go ahead and, and lead us into our lesson this week. So what is the nature of humanity anyway? What does it mean to be made in God's image? Does that mean that we have sacred worth? Are we God-like? Is our uniqueness something that makes us relational and social? Are we creatures in the same way that other things God has made are creatures? Are we an imperfect image? Is our consciousness a sign of the God nature in us? Is personhood unique because of God's nature in us? Do we have a free will? What about sin? What does the term imago dei mean? Well, when we look at some of the classical writings, we get some interesting observations. Our quality in being made in the divine image can include a lot of possibilities. So, when we read that we are made in the image of God, just what does that mean? Does it mean that we literally look like God, or is it more of a spiritual sense? Now, the theologian Georgia Harkness says, Made in God's own spiritual image, made male and female, man is God's supreme creation. There is a telling answer to every social system that impugns the dignity of man or that belittles the importance of women in the words, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Imago Dei means that man is created with qualities of mind and spirit that make him truly a person, not a biological organism, only or a subhuman animal. As God is personal, so is man a person in terms of his capacity for making moral choices, his rational intelligence, his concern for love and goodness, truth and beauty. Though always with the limitation that man's personality is derivative and incomplete, while only God is infinite and perfect. The most distinctive attribute of man is his free spirit, whereby he may either sin or seek after God in obedient love, and in this he reflects the image of the eternal. Creation in the image of God means that all men and not some fortunate few or some unusually righteous few, are precious to God. 
It is the final answer to race, prejudice, class, distinctions, national cleavages, and every other form of man-made separation. And so Georgia Harkness would ask us to remember that when God said, when it says in the Bible, rather, that God created humankind in his image, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them, Genesis 1.27, that we should realize that it's speaking of humankind, not a particular gender. I would concur with that, but it also means that we're not talking about a particular race or a particular national origin. So I can agree with Martin Luther King Jr., who said there must be a recognition of the sacredness of human personality. Deeply rooted in our political and religious heritage is the conviction that every man is an heir to a legacy of dignity and worth. Our Hebraic Christian tradition refers to this inherent dignity of man in the biblical term, the image of God, which is, by the way, what imago Dei means. This innate worth referred to in the phrase, the image of God, is universally shared in equal portions by all men. There is no graded scale of essential worth. There is no divine right of one race which differs from the divine right of another. Every human being has etched in his personality the indelible stamp of the Creator. And that's Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, much of the basis for his movement and those things that originated with him in the, uh, the struggle for equality and fairness stems from, from these biblical truths. So when humans, as far as we know are the only creatures in this world and on this whole creation, really, who wonder about themselves. If, if that's the case, if we're the only ones who can wonder about ourselves, the only ones who might say, where am I? Why am I here? And uh, am I fulfilling my purpose? I mean, does your dog think like that? Does your pet rabbit or guinea pig think like that when you watch the squirrels in your backyard like I do? Do you think that they are contemplating their eternal purpose or the sacredness of their life? Probably not. It almost sounds laughable. But in order for us to really understand what it means to be made in the image of God, we have to be able to accept the fact that that's an exclusive existence. Now, there are people who are very eager these days to tell us that there is no God and that religion, especially Christian belief and Jewish belief, uh, are somehow uh, flawed and based on myth. Well, then they would have to uh, at least come up with a reasonable explanation for the uniqueness of humanity. Um, If they can accept and believe that somehow humanity evolved from a lesser creature in the same way uh, that uh, evolution would say uh, it happens, that somehow we've, breached, we've, we've somehow bred ourselves into a superior intellect, then the question has to be asked, then why has no other creature done this? Why in all of human existence is humanity the only one that has continually progressed intellectually and spiritually, and by spiritual in this case, I mean in our ability and desire to contemplate things that are not quantifiable, like whether I have enough food for the winter or something like that. 
And so the question that we ask ourselves as we get ready to look at what it means to be made in the image of God really stem from this acceptance or non-acceptance of the fact of the human condition being entirely uh, affected by this unique quality that God has given humanity. We've got a lot to sort out, and we can't do it well without the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's take just a moment now to pray. Holy God, we thank you for the opportunity to learn together again in this unique virtual classroom. We thank you for the Spirit that guides our thoughts and uh, I especially thank you that your spirit will guide my words so that uh, more important than my uh, being understood is your being understood. I thank you, God, that uh, you have made us in your image, and I pray that I can help build the case for believing this is true in this next several minutes. I ask, Lord, that you bless each one who hears this, that each one will come to know you more intimately through their heart and mind and the synchronization of your heart and mind. Oh, God bless us now as we continue for your name's sake. Amen. So when you read the scriptures from the list from last week, did you begin to see some interesting uh, pinpoints from scripture about the nature of the human being? Obviously, the Genesis account tells us in the plainest language that we were made in the image of God. But then we read that uh, when life gets hard for human beings, especially when we read the Job account yet again this week, that uh, the human relationship with God is filled with choice and Sometimes living into that relationship with God and, and choosing to use the God-given liberty of thought and will is something dangerous and mysterious in itself. You probably read Hum, uh, Psalm 8, rather, and realized that God gives us a certain dignity despite our disobedience, that, that God is somehow in us in many of the things we do and say, and yet God makes what we do and say divine. The human experience has certain patterns that repeat themselves over and over again, and we see that as we read through the Psalms. In Romans, we read that uh, God's judgment is entirely righteous, and it's based on the fact that we were made in God's image, and therefore we are part of a uh, known covenant with God, a covenant that may have been breached as uh, early as Adam and Eve, but it is continually breached by us. In the letter to the Corinthians, we hear that uh, that breach of covenant with God is corrected or uh, redeemed because of God's grace, and therefore the divine nature of our being can be preserved throughout the existence of our being. Uh, I didn't really say that the way I wanted to. That our divine nature is preserved after our physical nature 
has decayed and in the very real sense it is the divine spark within us that outlives our bodies and uh, in the same way the writer of Corinthians wants us to see how God's grace makes that possible and uh, next week we're going to talk about sin in particular and this should make more sense then but for now our our primary task is to recognize how this being made in the image of God affects our relationship with God and each other and uh, just the very meaning of being made in the image of God is something that needs to be clearly understood because it'll change the way you interact with God and with other people. So, that being said, Dr. Callis tells us in his uh, in his workbook for uh, Christian Believer, the Bible study that we've been following, uh, produced by the Cokesbury Publishing House, uh, that uh, humans are fearfully and wonderfully made, as the psalmist says, but in particular he points out to us that in Genesis there are two creation accounts that parallel each other, and the first one seems to be more specifically stating that after God created everything else, then God made the man, and that when God made the man, that was with a sort of special approach, that that, that cre- creation uh, is different from the rest. I would interpret it this way. Basically, what it feels like he's saying is, is that the first Genesis account of the creation of the man is making it clear to us that when we are examining everything that God made, we see the unique difference and subtle difference between the human being and all the other things God created. But science has revealed to us pretty plainly in the last uh, century that people... Uh, and things on earth, all living things, have certain qualities in common, that the very structure of an atom is present in all things that are created, that there is a certain energy that is in everything, there is a certain rhythm that is in everything. And we look at the, the strands of DNA that cause uh, the, the particular uniqueness to happen, and we realize that there's DNA and there are atoms and there are millions of other chemical processes and things that exist in most everything that God has created that, uh, that is common to them both. Um, you know, I'm an old EMT and a Boy Scout first aid guy and everything, and, you know, a few years ago I was reading a book about... Uh, uh, or pamphlet really about pet first aid, and I realized that you know the physiology of my dog isn't all that different from my physiology, and therefore certain life-saving procedures will work on a dog the same as they will a person, just applied proportionally to the dog's physical difference from the human. But there's evidence in that 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 all of creation is built from many of the same founding uh, building blocks. And yet, humanity's different. And what is it about humanity that's different? Well, it's the one thing that you can't really measure, measure chemically uh, and quantify in some way. It's the difference between spiritual things and physical things. Um, if we look at the physicality of a human being versus the physicality of an ape, physicality of virtually any other creature or creation, 
we find that there are many, many similarities. But when we look at the spiritual difference, there's where we see the image of God in humanity that is unique. And what does that image of God look like? Well, that's kind of what we begin to see more plainly in the second Genesis account, which begins to describe more vividly how uh, we are living beings with a unique quality of thought and a unique sense of self. And so humans are different, perhaps because they're made in the image of God, in that we can contemplate our own nature, that we can think about our uniqueness of personality and our uniqueness of, uh, of existence. We can, <clears throat> we can talk about our likes and our dislikes, and we can talk about those things that are important to us and those things that uh, we invest ourselves in. We are interested in personal fulfillment and seeing others fulfilled in themselves. We have that unique quality. We have in us the, the ability to create just as God has created. And, and uh, we have a unique quality of, of uh, God in that we can not make something from nothing, which only God can do, but we can, in many ways, invent things that never existed before. And for what purpose? For the betterment of humanity. And so, in this godlike quality of creation, we see ourselves being more like God than in any other way. We join with God in making new things happen for a greater good. And this is, this is really godlike. And what's really remarkable is that God allows even those who reject God to have that quality. And that is, I guess, maybe the most profound thing that makes us in the image of God. And that is that God has given us the freedom to choose has given us a mind and a spirit that can turn and reject the very creator, the very loving father of our existence as humanity. And so this opens the door to the whole consequence and possibility of sin. Sin being this, this bent towards rejecting the creator, rejecting our heavenly father, and again, when we use terms like man and humanity and uh, father and so forth, these are all masculine terms, but in our vernacular, we would prefer to think of them more in a neutral sense. We, we think of God as Heavenly Father in part because this is the way Jesus referred to God. But I don't believe that God is entirely man or entirely female. God is like all that God has created, and all that is created in God's image reflects God, and therefore there is as much God in any female as there is in any male. There's as much God in any person whose skin is a different color than mine as there is in me, and therefore we don't think of him in those terms, even though we are sometimes reluctantly having to use language that might suggest otherwise. All that being said, God is that heavenly being who has created everything while being apart from everything God created, and we are beholden to God in ways that we may or may not be willing to acknowledge or may not be able to acknowledge. 
And so what happens is in the same way that Adam and Eve, who were made in God's image and lived in a, in a place and a time and an existence that God had created uniquely for, for his pleasure and for their pleasure, um, they still rejected God. And what's really interesting is, is that, uh, we'll go into this more in depth in the next week, but what's interesting is, is that this rejection of God isn't so much a wholesale rejection of God as it is a rejection of God's goodness. That is, uh, that there is this element of doubt about whether God is good. And that, in, in many ways, is the sin. The Genesis account basically tells us that when, when God told them that they should not eat of the tree of knowledge of life and death and good and evil, that they were able to be convinced that somehow this was a bad thing that God was doing, that somehow this wasn't in their best interest, that God was not being good. In our church, we have a, a phrase that is often used in our tradition. Uh, it's, it's really kind of an interesting uh phrase for me because it is a way that I've found it easy to gather people together and to gain some control over the room. You know, we like to say, God is good, and the people on the other end of the conversation reply, all the time, and then I would say, all the time, and the whole group of people would say, God is good, and then I've got their attention. And uh, if you've heard me do that even recently, then you're probably chuckling right now. But what I like to remind people when we use that phrase is we've just made a theological declaration. When we say God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, we are making a declaration of God's goodness and the absolute nature of God's goodness. And for anyone who would take a opposite position to that. If if you say, no, I don't think God is good all the time. I don't think God is always and everywhere good. Then you've basically uh, entered into the realm of sin. Because God would say that uh, to doubt God's goodness is to doubt God's very character. And this is the essence of sin. And so when they, Adam and Eve, uh, doubted God, And they choose to do what God told them not to do because of their doubt about God's goodness. They violated a trust. Now, when you think about that, imagine, if you will, those relationships in your life that uh, are like those between a father or mother and a child. Now, if you are not a parent, you may have to think back on when you were a child and your relationship with your parent. Um, Husbands and wives, to some extent, could relate to this. People in deeply intimate relationships could relate to this, I suppose. But, But imagine that you have this intimate relationship where the depths of love and connectedness that we feel with the other person are implicit, that they're just known in the very depth of our being, and there is no particular outward statement, but there is a particular uh, commitment to each other that, that spans the physical and delves deeply into the spiritual. This bond that a parent has with their child, this bond that exists between 
those who have faced life and death together, for example, the brotherhood of uh, the soldiers, for example, and these kinds of things that create these deep, deep bonds that can't be described because of their highly spiritual nature. Think in those terms and then imagine how those people would feel if one of the parties breached that trust. If that implied depth of love from the very heart of our being was breached in some way, what would that feel like? How would that be? Now imagine that that's what's happened between God and Adam and Eve. And imagine that between us and our Creator, there exists this depth of love that is not permissible until we reconcile the sin or the unwillingness to trust in the goodness of God. And sort of has a, that we have this sort of this uh, nature in us that tells us in the very depth of our soul that we are the sons and daughters of God, that we are one in being with the Father in certain ways, and that we're separated from the Father because of sin. Now, as you think about that, take just a moment and imagine to what extent a parent would go to restore the oneness of being that used to exist before the breach of trust. O Lord, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth, Psalm 8, verse 9 suggests. How wonderful our God is, because our God has saved us, saved us for a relationship with God. We can't really wrap our mind around it, but what we need to recognize is, is that because God has created us uniquely in God's image, that we are in a way made as a kind of extraction of the very DNA of our Creator. I mean, that's really what I was driving at a moment ago, is the parent sees in the child something of the parent's self. When my first child was born to me, I held her in my arms and I stared into her little face for hours. I couldn't stop holding her. I couldn't stop cradling her and looking at her and just amazing, being amazed at this little person that was part of me, part of this woman that I love. And it just blew me away. And I think any parent can relate to that. And I'm not saying that those who are adoptive parents or step-parents or anything like that have a lesser experience. But I would say that if you haven't had the opportunity to experience that sense of connection with someone, uh, then you don't know the spiritual side of parenting, only the physical side. And what I've learned from my friends and loved ones who are adoptive parents and step-parents is that we can make a decision to leap over the physical gap so that we have a spiritual bond. 
And in many ways, that spiritual bond becomes more powerful for the adoptive parent or the step-parent, mainly because there's an understanding that that has to be an intentional thing. But when this happens, we are more likely to understand the real nature of God's relationship with us. God looks at us and sees in us a part of God's self made in the image of God. And perhaps God sees us as that child that was taken at birth and raised in a different home. Uh, It's interesting, you know, how many adoptive children will go looking for their birth parent after they become adults. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, and I'm not here to talk about that. But imagine that God looks at you and knows that you are God's child, and yet that you are separated from God because of sin. And God says, if only I could bring you back to me. If only I could restore that relationship that is so natural because you're a part of me. Then you begin to see why God is so majestic and wonderful. Because God did, as only God can, create a way for us to be God's daughters and sons again. To come back to God. To be fully functional parts of God's body, of God's very being. And this is the marvelous and miraculous redemption that God has caused for us through Christ, God's Son. The story of Jesus is so profound and amazing in that we can take this made-in-the-image-of-God thing and we can view it through that lens. We can look at Jesus and we see in Jesus the very reality that God intends for all of us. And yet, For our sake, the one who was never separated from God chooses separation from God for a time to save us. When Jesus bears upon himself the weight of our sin, our sin, not God, not Jesus' own, but he bears the wrath of God for us while he deserved it for no reason he deserved it. And He, who was never separated from the source of his very being, separates himself for a time by taking upon himself our sin. He does that so that we who were separated and don't even know how awful that feels can be reunited with him, with God, restored to the very source of our being. This is how majestic and wonderful God's name is. That humanity who rejects God, this humanity who thumbs its nose at God, this humanity who says that God is a myth and God is a lie, is nevertheless given the opportunity to enter into a restored state of being with the one whose being births ours. That's kind of amazing. Maybe even a little overwhelming, I hope. And so, because we are the church, we believe that human beings are made in God's image. And 
that we have a divine destiny and that we have a divine nature and therefore we want to treat ourselves and other human beings as uniquely crafted for that purpose. Now, as you get ready to uh, wrap up this week's study with me, I want to give you a few questions to contemplate. Why do we humans ask questions about ourselves and our reasons for existence? In what specific ways does the teaching that all persons are made in God's image shape your attitudes and understandings of those you relate to, or even yourself? And if we're created for relationships, then why are relationships so difficult? Why are relationships so broken? Why are families so broken? How is the created world faring under the care of human beings made in God's image? In your view, how should humans view their place in creation as a whole? What are the implications of your views? If you want to, rewind and stop and contemplate each of those questions. And as you go through the week ahead, I want you to try to consciously see each person you have contact, contact with as being someone else who's made in the image of God. Try to consciously carry out your role as a participant in God's being, as one who is with God in being. Now let's close our time together with prayer. And this prayer comes from uh, a Puritan from the 1600s named Anne Bradstreet. Lord, why should I doubt anymore? when you have given me so many assured pledges of your love. First, you are my creator, I your creature, you my master, I your servant. I am confounded to think that God, who has done so much for me, should have so little from me. But this is my comfort, that when I come to heaven, I shall understand perfectly what he has done for me. And then I shall be able to praise him as I ought. Lord, having this hope, let me purify myself as you are pure, and let me be no more afraid of death, but even desire to be dissolved and be with you, which is best of all. Amen. Well, I hope you've received some blessing today from this podcast, and I hope that uh, you'll bear with me in my various imperfections. It seems every week I come to this microphone carefully planning and preparing, and then somehow I manage to stammer and stumble through it. And uh, my trust is that the Lord makes it sacred and holy and worthwhile for you just the same. I know that you, by now, a uh, regular listener, have come to memorize certain things that you'll expect to hear me say. For example, that your support is greatly appreciated. Your prayers, your encouragement, uh, I look forward to hearing from you. You can send me your comments that, uh, 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 by way of the links built into this uh, podcasting site. 
Um, you can also communicate with me through the website for the church I serve as senior pastor. I'm a pastor at Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana, and you can visit us at shilohum.org. That's S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M dot O-R-G. And if you'll go there and tool around the website, you'll find some indications of how you can communicate with us and learn more about the church. If you are free and available in this area and looking for a place to join and worship, we'd be glad to have you. And be sure and come to me and say, I've been listening to the podcast. That would mean so much to me. If you're one of those folks that we know from a distance, I thank you for joining us and being a part of this fellowship of the believers that spans the internet and the, the distances that sometimes I think may include vast oceans and other parts of the world. And if you're one of those people, I'd love to hear from you just to verify that you are listening in some other country than the United States and some other place than Indiana. And uh, that would mean a lot to me to hear from you. Nevertheless, I thank you, and I ask God's blessings upon you now and wish you the very best week, and uh, keep your head above water, and if you're one of those folks down south where the rains have done terrible things, let, uh, let yourself be assured of our prayers, our hopes, and the support that we send your way. God bless you, and goodbye. <laughs>